I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's cool boards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like, it just... history of time where we connect nerdery to the real world my name is ed blaylock i'm a world history and english teacher here in northern california and uh, just recently in the past week um my in-laws uh came by for a couple of days uh which was which was useful because um my son's daycare had a day off that neither i nor my wife had off hmm. because um, our schedules did not match up with with obviously his his daycare, um, and so they uh, were here to look after uh, our little boy uh, for the day. Uh, and while they were here, my father in law, because uh, he is the human embodiment of a shark, and uh, <laughs> will drown if he sits still for too long. <laughs> Uh, he installed uh, outlets on the outside of the house uh, so that in um, a certain period of time, uh, we have outlets available for us to put up holiday lights, hmm. uh, which is a very big deal uh, because uh, without getting too specific, we are, we are coming into a time of the year when you know decorating for various and sundry holidays becomes a thing. <laughs> and uh, so this is this is a very very big uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for not benchmark uh, watershed well well watershed it's it's an achievement it's a it's a a road marker uh, for us milestone uh, milestone thank you that's what I was looking for uh, it's a really big milestone for us uh, and and for me particularly because being able to have a house to put up lights for the winter holidays has been a thing I have wanted to be able to do for a long time. Mm. And we're, this year uh, we will be able to do it. And I'm very, very happy about that. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, it's also worth noting that of course they came here to do this babysitting and for my father-in-law to do this electrical work uh, immediately on the tail end of a two month trip to Europe they got back on the Saturday, stayed with my brother-in-law and his family um, 
for for part of the Sunday and then came came out to our place on Sunday afternoon and then headed home on Tuesday morning. So like I do not know where they get the energy. <laughs> like I I am I am consistently boggled uh by by their ability to just like keep moving. Uh so yeah, that's that's what I've had going on. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am an erstwhile barely Latin teacher uh, and a history teacher, U.S. history teacher at the high school level up here in Northern California. Um, and a couple things. One, um, if you hear a pause, it's because the mint ice cream got to me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay, good, I, I good to know. Up- Picked up a uh, uh, you know a container of Briar's ice cream. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not paying for this plug, but uh, I'll be paying for it probably. Um, but they, uh, I picked up a, a container of mint chip Briar's ice cream, a go-to standard, and it has no chips in it whatsoever, which has made it so that I just finished off my third bowl before starting this show. Um, it's uh, <laughs> I really like mint ice cream without uh, the chips. Uh, it apparently, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy cow! So, and the second thing, and and this is much, by the time this hits, it will be much further along than, than what I'm about to say, but very few people will actually be able to mark the time of year based on this. Mm. Um, I have just taught the gerund and gerundive for the last time in my career in Latin. Okay. So this year is, is going to be a year mm-hmm. of those milestones of like, well, this is the last time I'll ever teach this um, next week. How do you feel clauses. about that? It's bittersweet. Um, shouldn't happen. Mm. Um, it's happening, mm. and uh, there, there it is. Uh, okay. So, uh, shouldn't happened, and since it's happening, it should have happened three years ago. It's it's kind of like watching Muhammad Ali's last fight. You're like, oh, mm. he should have retired before this. Yeah, you know, it's that kind of feel. Yeah. Um, you know, or the last and, couple of games that Brett Favre played after he went back to the NFL. Yeah, like you know. Although you now, know, now that we know the kind of person he is, yeah, it's one of the few times I'm rooting for CTE. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> but yeah. So uh, that's that's kind of what I feel bad for laughing at that, <laughs> oh, but can. I can't not. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of what's right. happening around here. Um, okay. So yeah. So um, I got a question for you. Okay. Um, that's that's going to lead into, I think it always does, and it's going to lead into what we're talking about. Um, so we we uh, had a conversation mm-hmm. online, or didn't really have a conversation online earlier in the week, but there was a post I shared mm-hmm. earlier in the week from a prominent science fiction author, a literary science fiction author, of the new wave school of science fiction. And um, it, it had to do with the adaptation of one of his works into a film. And it was his response to, to that. Do you remember the question is, do you remember who the author was? Philip K. Dick. Yes. Aha. Yes. One of the only non H K. names. Yes. So yes. yeah, that's yeah true. Well, no, Asimov's not an H name. True. I've done Heinlein Herbert, done Asimov. Yeah. I've mentioned other authors, but you're yeah, okay. So yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was Philip K. Dick. Uh, 
mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick, um, well known uh, for his role in the new wave, as I just mentioned a moment ago, of uh, science fiction in the 60s and into the 70s. And uh, he was talking about the adaptation of one of his works to the screen. Uh, yeah, and, just and it real was, quick, if yeah. I may, uh, what is new wave science fiction? I'm going to get into that. Oh, okay, cool. Excellent. Because see, because see, I, I, I shared this quote, and mm-hmm. I, and I mentioned how, you know, he's he's a little bit prone to hyperbole because he talks about how you know flat and stale science fiction had gotten. He he wrote this thing shortly before his death in uh, 1981 or 82. Okay. And uh, he was he was writing to the people uh, responsible for this adaptation and and saying how how pleased and thrilled he was by it, even though it was in many ways significantly different from his uh, from his own novel sure and um do you remember how you respond to that person? uh well i mean his name is dick so i'm pretty yeah. sure i just did like a string of penile puns yes 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 and so in that moment i decided that what i had to do uh this week was give your balls a tug well i mean i do that anyway um, <laughs> you know, um, and, and I really want to try to do a, uh, uh, sh- uh Shorzy. Yeah. It's Shorzy. Shorzy. I want to yeah. try to do a Shorzy voice and say something about your mom, but I, I, I know I'm not going to be able to pull that off. Taint a good idea. Yeah, no, not. Um, and so I decided that, um, you hate noir with a burning fury and we've mentioned repeatedly, well, you've said you, you dislike it. Uh, yeah, I can't get into it. I can't get into it. It's very different than I different hate from hate like, with a burning period. Yeah, no, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Granted, but I'm I'm infected yes. by by you know uh Phillips uh, uh hyperbole at the moment. Sure. And so um I decided that um because I got rather a bit fired up by by you you choosing that moment to to vent your inner 12-year-old to the extent that you did. <laughs> Yeah. Um. Uh. It. 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 Basically, I decided that what what we needed to do mm-hmm. uh, was you needed to be educated on uh, Blade Runner. Oh boy. And and on uh, Philip K. Dick's original oh. novel, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Oh wow. And oh. and uh, get the the differences. Oh. <laughs> historically i've fallen asleep both times that i've tried to watch blade runner yeah so that is not a knock against you that is no i, I know I, yeah I, yeah i know yeah i i know yeah i know yeah um, but okay so do but, do androids so, dream of electric sheep yes okay so and and essentially it's another kind of kind of a book versus movie and and look at you know what was going on when the two books were when the when the two works were written yeah absolutely you know, like like with i robot mm-hmm. previously right right so, um, in 1960, also by Philip K. Dick. Uh, no, no, Isaac no. Asimov. Isaac Asimov. There Correct. we go. Okay. Um, so in 1968. Mm-hmm. So this is this is already nice. later than no. almost almost. Well, nice. no, 68. You you do the do, and then they owe you one. Oh, nice. all right, okay, all right. There you go. Uh. It's gonna be that kind of episode. Yeah. Gosh damn it! Well, but I I'm gonna put your this. author in the mashed potatoes. Yeah. Like... <laughs> I don't. It's yeah. Well, I did say it's gonna be that kind of episode. You All certainly right. did. Yeah. Okay. Right. So in in 1968, uh, yeah. Philip K. Dick, visionary science fiction writer and generally out there personality, mm-hmm. uh, wrote the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep." 
it's a very deeply philosophical novel uh, mm -hmm. examining what it means to be human through the lens of a noir adventure story. Now, it's important to note that it's a noir adventure story and not a noir detective story mm -hmm. because he's not trying to solve any kind of a mystery. He's he he does have to do some hunting down of some androids, but there's no like whodunit elements. It's so technically I wouldn't I wouldn't classify it as a mystery story. Okay. And uh, so to start, uh, Philip K. Dick was born in 1923. Uh, his first published work uh, came out at age 30. And then at... Uh, Wait, in... between 1923 and 1953, when his first published yeah. work came out. Yeah. Did he serve in the Navy during World War II? No. Oh, oh, this is different. Yes. Yeah. So uh, he first really gained acclaim and public attention for uh, The Man in the High Castle, an alternate I... universe novel uh, that he got published in 1962 mm -hmm. and which under completely different social contexts got adapted by Amazon Prime Video into a series uh, mm -hmm. starting in 2015. Which I think, honestly, I'm going to interrupt you here. I think that series ran out of steam specifically because the what if we were taken over by Nazis was no longer a question worth asking. Well, one and and two, it tried it, it ran into the same writer's room problems uh, that um, Game of Thrones ran into when it got ahead of the books. Yeah. And that um, I assume uh, the Handmaid's Tale ran into when they got to the end of the original novel and like, okay, well, where do we go from here? Now, in the case of the handmaid's tale, my understanding is that that has continued to, to hold up uh, yeah. narratively. Uh, but I know that, you know, game of Thrones, like famously it did not. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly plenty of anime fans uh, who watch any kind of series based on manga will point out that when something gets beyond uh, what the what the manga artists have actually managed to write, and they're and they're creating filler episodes, and they're trying to come up with new storylines. Stuff kind of tends to flag and fall apart. It's it's sure. just a problem when you're doing an adapted kind of thing. Yeah. Now, one of the things that is kind of a hallmark of uh, Philip K. Dick's work is that it's marked by a level of deep seated existential uncertainty. So in um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, there is blurring of the line between human and android. The Man in the High Castle blurs the line between universes and the knowability of history. Mm. And then uh, another one of his works, that's probably one of his most famous, is Through a Scanner Darkly, uh, which is a very direct uh, commentary on the war on drugs and you know, governmental control of, of drug using behavior. And it is full on paranoid and it deals with issues of deception and self-deception along with a lot of psychedelia kind of, kind of issues tied in. So I'm not, I'm not hearing from those three. I'm not hearing, um, your standard existentialism. Um, what I'm hearing ultimately is epistemology. It okay. sounds like he's playing yeah. with 
Uh, and he's and he's I mean, he's writing before Derrida does deconstruction stuff in the 70s. So yeah. but this this well, does feel well, he's, he's writing, I'd say Scanner Darkly is probably concurrent. Oh, OK. With that. So he's I mean, he's certainly influenced by by those kind okay. of kind of. Because, yeah, what I'm hearing is a lot of epistemological movements. stuff going on. Oh, OK. Really yeah. When, when I when I when I say existential uncertainty i mean un- uncertainty within within the framework of one's existence or one's identity okay so not not with a capital e existential okay. Okay. but gotcha tied to existence that makes sense but yeah, yes yeah, yes does. you are on a on a philosophical level you are far more correct and that's a better area of your knowledge than mine so yes <laughs> epistemological issues are definitely a thing okay and um, I mentioned earlier that he's an important part of the new wave movement in science fiction he's one of the you might consider him one of the founding voices of the new wave movement. And that started in the sixties, ran through the seventies. And then by the end of the seventies, you don't hear anybody talking about the new wave anymore because everybody else in science fiction had basically adopted the things that the new wave was kind of trying to do and trying to work with. Okay. Um, The new wave, first of all, moved away from utopian tendencies in science fiction that it existed up uh-huh. until that point um and new wave uh had more literary ambition and the style was more literary um they were doing more with their prose they were doing uh much more consciously artful things with their with the language they were using were they including women more or no you hit and miss um so, there were before hoes there <laughs> Yes. yes. Um, Although there were uh, several very important uh, female authors that were part of the new wave. Mm -hmm. uh, So there was more representation on that level. Ursula K. Legan is uh, one of the, one of the important voices uh, that's part of that. Uh, She's uh, very well known during this period for the left hand of darkness, uh, which is held up as one of the examples of the new wave. Gotcha. And um, new wave uh, science fiction also dealt with controversial social issues um, in a in a more direct way, and mm-hmm. and consciously was trying to approach social issues. Um, those for those who walk away from Omelas is an example of uh, the new wave. Okay, and to uh, to summarize that for those who walk away from Omelas. Um, I want to say it's Legin's work, but I, I could be misattributing it, but it, I know it's a, a female author and I'll have to look it up here in a minute. Um, but um, the people of the city state of Omelas live in this beautiful utopia where everything is provided for them. They have this super high tech, uh, like to the point of it being magical, high tech kind of existence. Uh, no one ever suffers from disease. No one ever goes hungry. None of that. But every year they hold a festival where they open up the, the inner workings of, of the, the temple, essentially at the center of the city and everyone in the city and especially young people in the city are encouraged to go in and look at the source of their prosperity and happiness. And what they find is there is a single orphaned child who is suffering immensely and their utopia depends upon the suffering of that child. And so 
there are there are many of them who walk away from Omelas out into into the distance in, into into the wilderness and, and nobody in Omelas knows what happens to them but there are people who consciously make the choice to walk away wow so i mean like it's a really stark kind of social commentary right and that's that is that is a defining feature of a lot of kind of okay. typical uh new wave uh science fiction and so Finally, one of the things that's kind of defining about the new wave is that it is very consciously um, a response to, and in most cases, a rejection of uh, the pulp style or the pulp era of science fiction, uh, the style of writing and many of the tropes that were associated with it. So it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the, and the name new wave was consciously taken from, the new wave of French cinema, which was similarly this new development of the use of the art form okay. at about the same time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more sophistication than what had come generations previous. Like yes, your descriptions of prior authors, uh, you know, it's like they didn't, they didn't care about, you know, the, the details. They, they wanted you to get to the place and, and follow yeah. the story. And this yeah. is like, oh, there's some serious moral shit going on here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's there's a lot more. Uh, let's let's um, let's deconstruct these tropes. Let's take a look right. at. Okay, well, wait a minute. If if we do this, what's going to happen here? Right. Um, you know, in a way, um, the Caves of Steel and the Robot series um, is a precursor to yeah, some of this stuff one... because it's psychological it's social science fiction psychological right. science fiction and so this was okay yeah we're gonna take what what he did there mm -hmm. and we're like gonna gonna go deeper on that yeah it really gonna, feels gonna, like you know, uh specifically the the one you just mentioned uh upon which i robot is based uh loosely um yes it's uh it feels very much like that was kind of knocking on the door and this is like you know doing way more than that like <laughs> this is going much this deeper. is this is kicking the door open and and rushing and, in with a fire hose yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so now um electric sheep mm -hmm. do androids dream of them is an almost codifying example of what new wave looked like okay um asimov wrote a story about human-like robots and he was looking at, well, you know, how would people react to that? And what what kind of what kind of situations would that create and how would that work? Sure. And that's great and all, but but Dick isn't just concerned with Asimov's questions of how society gonna change. He's going for like what actually makes us any different from robots. Okay. Like when robots get sufficiently advanced, where where do we draw the line? Why do we draw it there? Right. You know. Um sure. so to summarize the story. Uh, the world of 1992. Oh, <laughs> pushed the forward Halcyon to 20 days. Mm -hmm. yeah. Pushed forward to 2021 and later editions of the book. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Earth has been devastated by nuclear exchange, referred mm -hmm. to as World War Ultima. Mm. Lingering radiation has made long-term human habitation of Earth a bad idea because of sterility, uh, sure. mutation, etc. So the United Nations has put together a program uh, that strongly encourages citizens to move to off-world colonies. 
And one of the things that they are enticed with is the promise of personal servants. If you go out to the outworld colonies, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll have, you'll have androids to, you know, do your work for you. Sure. Um, in the electric sheep universe, these androids are only distinguishable from humans two ways, either through an empathy test mm -hmm. and via autopsy and analysis of bone marrow. So even the bones themselves yeah, are yeah they are they are they are bio androids bio okay. robots okay so like the end of bicentennial man what he turned himself into yeah 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 okay from time to time androids escape and flee to Earth okay and a police officer named Deckard gets assigned to find and retire six highly advanced androids and he's going to be paid a bounty for hunting them down. But he's a official government authority, or no? He's he's a he's, he's he's essentially a private contractor, police officer. Okay. Okay. Oh, he 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 has more accountability with that. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe I don't yeah. know. Uh, I don't want to try it. Yeah, it no, way. I don't think yeah. I don't think it's a good idea. But yeah, so he he has this job to find and retire six mm -hmm. highly advanced androids. Now, um, the title, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, um, is a kind of secondary plot point. Mm -hmm. Pets, in, in the wake of the nuclear war, pets have become a, a major status symbol. And people who have money uh, spend a lot of money to get uh, animals like sheep or goats and keep them as pets. Okay. And uh, first of all, the complete collapse of the planet's ecosystem has made animals very rare, which means they're very expensive. And there is a push for empathy as a social value. Like there is, there is a, you know, uh, the, the, the theme of, of empathy is a very big deal throughout the whole book. And so keeping, having an animal, keeping an animal, um is a is a way of exercising empathy uh generating you know flexing your ability to empathize and right. and has moral status associated with it right okay so deckard <laughs> no, yeah, in some in some instances it's, it's like fostering a a child from a marginalized community yeah, kind of. Yeah, actually, yeah, it feels That's... a little blindsidey. Feels a little Sandra Bullock. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, a little bit. Okay. So, um, and and so Deckard, uh, one of the very first things that that Deckard thinks when he mm -hmm. gets this job, uh, is uh, he'll be able to with the bounty he'll be able to afford to buy a real animal for his deeply depressed wife okay his wife is apparently is suffering from crippling depression sure and they have a robot sheep that is essentially a sheep droid okay like like externally you wouldn't be able to tell the difference right you know but it's but it's not an actual animal right right okay now in the book uh there's also this new religion called mercerism 
in which practitioners link together via empathy boxes in this virtual uh, exercise of mass suffering centered on the figure of Wilbur Mercer, who they all collectively witness continually climbing a steep slope while being bombarded with stones. And there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis on how difficult the climb is. And there's a lot of emphasis on him getting hit and bleeding and the pain of it all. Is this just because it's so utopian? Oh no, no, it ain't, it ain't utopian at all. No, no. Okay. So then why fetishize bloodletting? um because like, because where is this coming from because normally you see that all, kind of thing yeah, where it's all... you know like i'm the thing that brought to mind was uh in season one of no season two of star trek the next generation Worf going through the age of ascension um yeah and doing the pain sticks and all that yeah yeah and and, and there's high value on that and of course it's contrasted against the you know communist utopia of starfleet <laughs> of, and, of and, the federation yeah where, and everybody's like, like why would you go through this pain and it's no this is important for his culture you know and so it's this nice little um juxtaposition so i'm wondering well why there's there's a couple it's it is for the for the participants the the world is dead and so there is no there is no nature to go out and experience any kind of spirituality through okay Christianity and Buddhism and other faiths aren't equipped to deal with the uh, level of bleak despair that is okay. that is the the backdrop of human existence on Earth at this point. Okay, and so the point in Mercerism is the the uh, we are we are all sharing in his pain. We are all empathizing with him it was you know lack of empathy lack of understanding okay. that led to the war that got us all here we have to we have to feel one another's pain you know we all have to find our inner bill clinton i feel your pain you know right. and and, and right. exercise that and and through that achieve some level of spiritual emotional fulfillment okay the only the only mechanisms like there's no there's no mention of mass media. There's no mention of like what these people do in this setting for entertainment. There's no, the only, the only things that we find out that people are doing for any kind of fulfillment or emotional or spiritual uh, uh, respite mm-hmm. are the keeping of pets right? and, and the empathy boxes. Okay. All right. So, and um, <clears throat> I, I, <laughs> I had your. I knew that you were going to ask a question at that point, but you you went into left field. Sorry, because what I was expecting mm-hmm. was uh, that you were going to bring up the obvious parallel between Mercer and Sisyphus. I was actually going to go with the flagellants. Okay, well, there's um, that because because yes. I was swinging for both poles here. Like, okay, yeah, either this is a reaction to utopianism, which is impossible given the world that you've described, or this is a we're so sorry, God. Clearly, we have to flog ourselves more. Yeah, and and there's there's an element of that too. Yeah. So, but but, but the the specifics of Mercer's suffering are are it it Mercer is Sisyphus. Okay. And we have to imagine Sisyphus happy. Right. 
And so I cannot believe that anybody who was as intensely um, counterculture and philosophical and everything else Mm -hmm. was not on some level referencing uh, Camus. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and, and this absurdism. is obligatory. Like, yeah. Here's Camus. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as I already mentioned, uh, Deckard owns literal electric sheep, um, over the course of the novel, uh, and he does eventually after he retires, I want to say it's the first two mm-hmm. androids, uh, the bounty from those two is enough for him to buy an actual, uh, very, very, uh, prestigious, uh, you know, very, very shishi, uh, breed of goat as okay. a, as an animal for his wife. Um, and so there's the, there's the plot device of the distinction between the robotic sheep and the, and the actual physical animal. Mm-hmm. And like outwardly, he can't tell the difference in their behavior because the programming right. of the, of the robotic sheep was, you know, as good as it was. Yeah. This is the, the singularity writ large. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and or the Turing so, test, I'm sorry, the Turing. Yeah. Test the Turing test. Yeah, yeah. Very much writ large. And so, um, th- th- it's, it's a, it's a convoluted kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the course of it, Deckard at one point actually begins to doubt his own humanity briefly, but has it confirmed Oh, and okay. he has a significant moral crisis because of the the emphasis on empathy. He realizes, sure, that you know there is there is pain that he is inflicting, and and you know these are nearly human mm-hmm. people who he is retiring. Um, and he he has a moral crisis about his job. He has a tryst with an android named Rachel. Um, and, and there's no stigma against that. No, not okay. not for the fact that she's an android. That okay. that doesn't come up. Um, there's a little bit of the ethical question of like, you know, he's married and he's doing this, but sure, you know, sure. um, the reader is left androidness. To... Yeah, and and the and the the uh, question that the reader is left with at the mm-hmm. at the end of the book. The question that you're that you're left with is whether the humans or the androids are more truly human. Because we see over the course of the story, the androids going to very great lengths mm-hmm. to protect themselves, to to survive, to get away from Deckard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the humans have become more robotic. The humans have this limited uh, level of spiritual uh, outlet. The humans don't have any any of the the other hallmarks that we look at as making us human. You know, mm-hmm. there's no, you know, they the society has become clinically depressed. Uh, right. Deckard's wife essentially is a stand-in, much like in Fahrenheit 451. Uh, the protagonist's wife there is kind of the the stand-in or avatar for the rest of the society. Okay. Deckard's wife in the book is a stand-in for the rest of society, and she's clinically depressed. Okay. And so the question then becomes, you know, okay, where, where who's who's really more human here? Right. 
and and or, so or more importantly what does humanity mean yeah yeah because if you have to ask a question quantifying it then it's probably time to reassess what what the definition about. is yeah 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 so okay so now to kind of get an idea of where the world was when this was written this of course is written in 67 into 68 and so hmm? oh boy oh boy yeah yeah Yeah. um so uh u.s involvement in vietnam had started in 61 Mm -hmm. Uh, the tonkin gulf incident was in 1964 and by 68 the united states is in a full-scale war in vietnam right uh there are you know, daily protests all over the world against sure. um, the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam, um, and it's it's you know on the nightly news, and there are images on the nightly news of you know what's what's happening in in theater, you know mm-hmm. the, the devastation being wrought by uh, U.S. bombing campaigns, um, right. you know, and and the efforts of the army. Uh, to try to, you know, decommunize uh, villages, you know, throughout the country. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, well, and and since we're talking about the epistemological uh, implications of, of, like, his writing in general, uh, this war is a really good example of that. Like, uh, America had clearly been the bastion of democracy. It marketed itself as such in World War One, And in World War Two, it kind of proved it by toppling the Nazis. Um, doesn't yeah. mean America wasn't guilty of horrific war crimes mm. uh, by all definitions, yeah. but uh, by and large, they were on the right side of things. Now you get to Korea and it's questionable, but we'll look the other way and it, mm-hmm. it's not even questionable. But, you yeah, know, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you get to Vietnam and like not only are we bombing the hell out of a civilian population to maintain our credibility for having backed a former colonizer that itself decided, no, we're getting the fuck out of here in 1954 leaving us mm-hmm. holding the bag and us going like, well, I guess we have to finish it. <laughs> and um, propping up a right wing. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Government. Exactly. Like, uh, and having, you know, and then assassinating wrong, and, and allowing, or sanctioning allowing, their assassination. Sanctioning his assassination. And, yeah. yeah. And so like, who are the good guys here? And I mean, the very people that the United States is trying to suppress are the ones who are quoting Thomas Jefferson. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and not ironically, like saying, hey, no. can you help no. us with this since this is what you stand for? So, yeah. like, there's a lot of epistemological um, contortions that need to be done to understand the United States involvement in Vietnam, especially going into 67 and 68, because now you're talking about the Johnson years going into the Nixon years. Right. And you're talking about uh, the Tet yeah. Offensive. Well, um, you're talking about Tet Offensive and in, in March of 68. Yeah, you're talking about me lie. Yeah. So uh, although in March of 68, is that when me lie comes out? Or no, is that when, when it, Mi- that's when it took place? When it took place. Uh, so okay. me lie, me lie wasn't in wasn't was, in Dick's yeah. head at the time he was writing the book. Right. But it 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 was something the environment that led to me lie. Right. Kind of the point I'm trying to make the environment yes. that led to me lie is the environment in which he was writing. the book. Yeah. And and I would so, say that you know you got the Tet Offensive happening in January I believe because Tet, um, but yeah. uh, that's happening in January where you know United States thought it was winning, and then the Tet Offensive happened and the United States was like well this was a victory for us 
Yeah. And Cronkite comes back and goes like, there's no fucking way we can win. This. We like, can't. We're not. Yeah. It's not even a Pyrrhic victory. It's a it's yeah. a tactical and strategic victory. And yet it's the death knell of U.S. efforts in yeah. Vietnam because yeah. they lost many, many magnitudes more. Yeah. And yet they proved, oh, you thought you were safe? We were in the first floor of your 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 embassy embassy yeah um and it took you the whole goddamn month to fight us back out like it was oh like, no historically speaking yeah. the Tet offensive is not uh not considered uh to have been uh fully pushed back until september 23rd yeah of 68 so yeah so like no, all was, that's going on and yeah. cronkite is like uh, nope it's done and i mean that's when yeah. johnson realized fuck i can't run again like yeah. Despite yeah. us being told all these things about American exceptionalism, American brilliance, where the, yeah. the, the bastion of democracy, all the evidence coming out of Vietnam is like the direct opposite. The facts are the direct opposite of yeah. what the United States is is proffering forth. So yep. Dick is writing when the truth is absolutely not yeah. what we say. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, so now at the same time, so we have, we have that going on in Vietnam and, mm -hmm. and at the same time, uh, both the U S uh, and the USSR had built doomsday scale nuclear arsenals. Yeah. Uh, now at this point in history, the U S was still way ahead of the USSR in number of warheads, mm -hmm. but combined there were still enough to destroy the world more than yeah. once. Literal overkill. Yeah, literal overkill. And the specter of, of nuclear annihilation was was close. It oh, yeah. was, you know, um the um uh oh god damn it. Um Cuba. The, oh, the Cuban missile crisis? Cuban missile crisis. Thank you. Yeah. Jesus. Uh you know, Cuban missile crisis had been just a few years before. Right. Um, and you know, so the, the theme of what's going to happen after, after both sides pulled the trigger mm -hmm. was on everybody's mind. And this, this was part of, uh, well, that sets the part of Dick's of, answer. Yeah. yeah. This is yeah. part of Dick's answer as well. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to look good. You know, humanity is dying a slow psychological death in the wake of it. Um, the civil rights movement in the United States and anti-colonial movements worldwide. Right. Yeah, we have to keep bombing the shit out of these people so that we can push the civil rights activity too. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and and for the great society, like yeah. there's nothing about this that isn't twisted up non. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so this, both of these things, the anti-colonialism and the civil rights movement, make questions of common humanity and equality a running theme on the evening news. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you, you have to ask the question if, if we're all human, don't we all have the right to the same, the same rights. And if you are denying one group of people, their rights, what are, what are the defining characteristics you're using? Right. In order to deny them those rights. And doesn't that somehow make them less human? Yeah. You know, well, isn't and worth noting where was it? Oh, where was it? Where was it from? It might have been in the eighties, where like, mm. and and if in which case this is uh, anachronistic, but it was along the lines of we just have to hope that the Russians love their children as much too. 
<laughs> you know. Uh, well, that I know. Uh, Sting made okay, a song. Yeah. In the, okay. In then the I'm 80s. I'm being anachronistic. Well, oh, I don't know. Um, so I don't think um, I don't think Sting took that from from another source. Yeah. I, yeah. So it's anachronistic. Um, it's it's it is anachronistic. Yeah. Um, but I'm, but I'm going to hold, I'm going to put that in my pocket though mm-hmm. for, for when we talk about the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that though. Oh, Cause that's, there's, there's meaning there. Yeah. Um, so at, uh, the same time that that's going on and at the same time that Dick is writing, mm-hmm. uh, existentialism, <laughs> nihilism and yep. absurdism, um were all major 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 cultural uh, uh i don't i don't quite want to say cultural movements but they were they were philosophical ideas and philosophical movements that had a very great deal of influence on the countercultural movements yeah of the 1960s uh dick was very much a counterculturalist um he he was a a believer in psychedelia uh, in the seventies, particularly, he uh, was a was a regular user of, uh, if I remember correctly, it was LSD and psilocybin at different times. Both of which um, used for epistemological growth for most people, like it yes. was ostensibly for that, yes, and it was that recreationally is, yes. for that. Yeah, doors of perception, etc. Like all of that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, he notably had a. Uh, a spiritual a, a very intense moment of uh had a spiritual experience uh in it was either 70 or 71 uh related to all of that but he was he was working toward that for a long time mm-hmm. um and that's that epistemological kind of questioning mm-hmm. and that that kind of thought is very clearly a very big part of what he was what he was working with in this book and so now um we're going to fast forward to 1982 okay and by 1982 we have Thatcher and Reagan in Downing Street and the White House uh, sure. respectively and you know, just I'm okay. sorry let me just back yeah. up the, the, yeah no of course yeah I keep bringing up epistemology and then it occurs to me Karl Popper was doing his shit right around then like the father of the philosophy that is epistemology like yeah he's he's doing his thing in that time like that's that's when a lot of his stuff is is he's getting recognized for it um he's you know he's he's adding a lot to the philosophical zeitgeist like that's that is him he's oh yeah yeah no that's yeah well worth noting yeah and yeah and and so Okay, so um, back to Reagan. Yeah, Thatcher. well, yeah. So we so we have uh, so the the novel comes out in sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fourteen years go by. Okay, and we have the seventies, which was just kind of a shitty decade all around. Yeah, terrible for everyone. It's <laughs> just bad for everybody. Um, all kinds of uh, uh, chickens coming home to roost uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, uh, two count them two fuel crises, gas crises. Uh, there are major, uh, economic downturns. Yeah. 
uh, tensions in the Cold War kind of fluctuate, but mm -hmm. never go away. Um, they kind of calcify. Yep. Uh, and uh, Carter uh, notably tries to tries to work a system of detente with the Soviet Union to try to reduce tensions. Right. Uh, there are some there are some arms treaties that get signed during this time. But, you know, the, the decade just sucks. And, mm -hmm. you know, you look at you look at kind of what happens in in art and in movies and in a lot of things. And we just kind of there's a really heavy downer vibe in a lot yeah. of in a lot of places in the seven kind of all over. Yeah. Um, And then so uh, Thatcher and Reagan both come into power in the two largest Western democracies. Mm -hmm. uh, Turning them into not that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh on the on the promise of um this right wing sunny optimism based on, you know, we're we're just, you know, we're gonna come in and we're gonna fix everything. And there's no reason for us to be sad anymore. We're gonna, yeah. you know, we're gonna find our strength and we're gonna, you know. Well, and... not just find our strength. That's one thing. It's find our yeah. once great strength. It it is an appeal oh, to yeah. nostalgia yes. from the yes. jump. Like Thatcher about empire, uh, Reagan yeah. about some sort of mythological time. The the immediate post-war prosperity of the 50s? Maybe. Late it, 40s? It, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. 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 There, there, there was this sunny, sunny, uh, uh, nostalgic kind of, kind of rose-colored view. Yeah. Pleasantville kind of, kind of look to everything. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they get into power and... One of the things that they immediately take action against is this perception that uh, we have been moving too far toward uh, socialism and we've been moving too far toward the middle with the evil empire. Right. And so, uh, you know, that has that's that's and they blamed uh, government programs, government regulation for the economic downturns and for gas prices being too high and for, you know, the, the oil crises and the, everything by Reagan explicitly and by Thatcher, not quite as explicitly, but, but just as forcefully, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Right. And so they immediately made this dramatic shift toward, uh, Pro corporate free market policies, anti union. I'm about to get there. Oh, um, <laughs> in the global West, mm -hmm. and a big part of that was anti union. Of course, in in the UK, there were the miners' strikes, right? And Thatcher Thatcher shattered the, mm -hmm. the miners' unions. And in '81, here in the United States, the Federal mm -hmm. Air Traffic Controllers Union went on strike, and Reagan basically said fuck you and just fired all of them like in an, in an un yeah. like i want to say unprecedented but for for many decades unprecedented yeah, like well, he was... he went he went back to the henry ford school of of yeah. labor labor relations and just said right. all right fine fuck you you're all fired well there was a you there know? was a regulation that said that um he had the like the, the federal government could in fact fire striking workers of this particular uh yeah. type of job but every every president up till that point 
had refused to do that. You know, it's kind of like, okay, we're not going to do that. That's that's the button. We're not yeah. going to push the button on that. And he's that like, be... I'm going to push it eight times <laughs> I'm, I'm with my dick. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah I'm Nancy's just going to push gonna it twice hammer... with my dick. Yeah. So, like, ugh, boy, there's a visual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nancy was, was, yeah, she was a fan of dick. She, she, mm. oh, man. Mm. You've, yeah, yeah, I don't. I, visuals anyway moving on well she was younger when yeah she was well yes on mgm as the, yeah this is yeah, this is true dj assistant yeah <laughs> so so um you know they they immediately come in and they do this anti-union shit and yes. um the thatcher administration or thatcher yeah thatcher cabinet in in the uk uh just basically says oh yeah that whole uh post-war uh post-war agreement that we had mm-hmm. yeah no fuck that yeah no right. the, the post-war consensus is no that's old news no we're 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 gonna keep the parts of that that we decide we think are important but we get to decide what that is and uh by the way labor party fuck you like no right and uh here in in the United States, it was we're going to slash tax rates in in this pursuit of supply side economics. We're just we're just gonna hand rich people more money. Right. On the assumption that if we just let corporates corporations uh you know keep more of their profits, somehow they're going to be motivated by what I don't know. Uh, out of the goodness of their hearts to then let that money trickle down to their workers and a rising tide will lift all boats. And no. <laughs> Which is a weird way to get a rising tide. Yes. Trickling yeah, into the bay. Yeah it's, yeah. yeah. it's bizarre. So, and of course, <laughs> no, no, no less uh, distinguished uh, figure than George Herbert Walker Bush uh, in the primary races against Reagan had referred to it as voodoo economics himself. Right. Like, <laughs> uh, and then it became, you know, just stated economic policy for the Republican Party for forever since. since then. Yeah. And, and then, and then, you know, the, the new, new Democrats uh, decided that they were going to try to steal the middle by adopting it themselves. Right. You know, and so that just became a given in American economic policy ever since. Uh, which we can <laughs> spend a lot of time talking about, but like anybody who listens to the podcast has already heard us talk about it ad nauseum before. Yeah. The short version, though, it yeah. essentially yanked the Overton window, uh, window of discussion of any kind of economic policy so that uh, supply side economics does seem like a reasonable option. Yeah. Instead that was of that was a, this was a failed experiment. We all know. Let's move on. It's instead yeah. of like treating it like ether after 1927. Nice. Um, yeah, thank I you. I like the reference. Very yeah. good. Instead of treating it like that, everybody's like, well, well. And it's like, no, it's no. never. Yeah. Fucking no. Yeah. <laughs> and multiple economists, like People who study this shit, the, like the experts of the dismal science, have been right. saying forever, no, just no, it, it, like no, and politicians and and pundits have just ignored them. It was right. almost like we could hear them. I don't know what happened to them, but they're gone. <laughs> anyway, about supply side, like they're walking between the raindrops. Yeah, yes, they must be. So, 
um, beyond economics in mm-hmm. 1980, uh, the United States had uh, roughly 23,000 nuclear warheads stockpiled. I'd like to know how many air traffic controllers got fired because if the number is <laughs> similar, that's fun. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't look that up, but that's all right. uh, yeah, the USSR had roughly thirty-three thousand. Ah, see, they're gonna win. Yeah, this killing is... us the most times. <sighs> this is the, the only source people, of the the only people that would like have like take issue with. Oh, you killed me more than once. Would be people who believe in reincarnation. Yeah, and they didn't have the bomb yet. Like no. the, the the largest nation of people who believe in reincarnation did not have the yeah. bomb until 98. Yeah. So, no. No. so uh, this this situation is the source of the infamous missile gap argument. Right. Which led to the Reagan administration's uh, attempts to build the Star Wars defense system, SDI, mm-hmm. you know, Space Defense Initiative. Right. Um, yeah. And at the same time, uh, the Reagan administration, because right wing and you know, toxic masculinity, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, moved away from detente and toward a far more aggressive stance toward the USSR. Right. Okay. Uh, we've we've declared the USSR uh, illegal. Uh, the bombing campaign begins in five minutes. My go-to Reagan quote didn't right. think he was on a hot mic. Like, but that just encapsulates the mindset. It really does. Like, like, like so brilliantly. He's joking, like, but he's mm-hmm. also saying it's it's also he's saying like, the quiet part out joking. loud yeah 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 <laughs> so at the same time uh as that's going on uh, the soviet union uh invaded afghanistan in 81 and both the united states and the ussr began deploying intermediate range nuclear missiles in europe mm-hmm. um in 1980 we boycotted the moscow olympics Right. Then they boycotted um, 84's Olympics. They boycotted 84, but we're talking about, I'm focusing on pre 82 right now. So that, that part hadn't happened yet. But although I, I will say by that point, uh, we knew that the Olympics were going to happen in LA. Yeah. And at that point, they, there was a lot of effort put into, we're going to show the world what a privatized Olympics can be. Go yeah. capitalism. Like yeah. it was that was, was already thing. in the in yeah, that was oh, that yeah. was already that urine was already in the shallow end of the pool. Nice. Yeah. Talk about images again. <laughs> so um because of these tensions, mm-hmm. the uh bulletin of atomic scientists moved the doomsday clock ahead by three minutes in nineteen eighty one to four minutes until midnight. Okay. Can you explain that? clock i i think i remember it i think i know it but i never had it fully explained to me okay it is time okay it is it is still a thing Mm -hmm. um and the drama of it being set to four minutes until midnight in 81 uh is a little bit um uh uh the, the drama is a little bit undercut when i tell you that not only is it still a thing but right now we're at 100 seconds to midnight (laughs) <laughs> they've actually gone away from minutes and, and said, no, no, we're, we're oh, less wow. than two minutes from midnight. Wow. Uh, largely because of, at this point, it's largely because of climate change. Although tensions between the United States and North Korea, and of course, right now, the situation in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. Right. And um, India and Pakistan, both now having the bomb and just right. all of these things all together. But really the biggest driver 
in the last two years uh, has been climate change. But okay. the the international the, the bulletin of atomic scientists um, is a publication by nuclear scientists or f- by and for nuclear scientists, and it's also the name of the organization that puts out the the bulletin. Got to work and on your pausing in... there. Sorry again. You got to work on your pausing there. Yeah, sorry. It's the name of the organization that puts out bulletins. Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. Well, so... I think that you have the potential to be a huge dictator. Yeah, uh... yeah. That was <laughs> that was unfortunate. <laughs> um, but if you're finishing that word with tater, the first part still applies. Yeah, true. In that true. particular case, but yeah. anyway, yeah, I, I don't know about the promiscuity of the organization of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, but um, in starting in. Uh, 1953 mm-hmm. um, the they they created the clock as a measurement of how close we are to the end of the world midnight wow. midnight is human civilization becomes untenable like Jeez. we can't we can't we can't continue like we're done game right, over right bye bye we had a good run it's it's all over thanks for all the fish you know Gonna uh, say that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, the clock had been set uh, at I want to say five minutes to midnight uh, okay. in 1953, right after U.S. nuclear tests of that were uh, Operation Ivy, and the Soviets had performed the Joe tests. Is and that so the at one that point, blew out the windows from wherever the hell? The like no, the that's one? that's okay. Tsar Bomba. Uh, that's that's, right. that's, that's right. just the the. And and interestingly, although Sarbamba was an example of holy shit, look at what we're capable of doing now. Oh God, um, it by itself did not lead to a shifting of the position of the clock because yes, that one individual bomb is gobsmackingly terrifying. Sure, like on a on a on, a, on an epistemological level. Yeah, you know. Uh, but existential uh, level, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, at that point, yeah. But but um, the number of warheads that were already in existence at that point meant that yeah, it doesn't really matter how big right. they get. Like, oh, you landed yeah. a haymaker after landing a hundred <laughs> unanswered shots. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so in eighty one, uh, the clock the clock got moved to the closest point it had at that point. Ben mm-hmm. to midnight. Uh, at the same time that was happening, the Reagan administration, uh, <laughs> there's a recurring theme here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Reagan administration pushed hard back uh, against environmental regulation mm-hmm. and against the environmental conservation movement. Uh, they worked very hard to try to limit the ability of the APA to enforce things. They worked very hard to try to deregulate as much as they could because again, their philosophy was government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And in particular, I found this interesting acid rain uh, was an issue Reagan denied. Like he, he didn't, he didn't believe it was a thing until he made a visit to Canada and was directly confronted with the damage it caused. Does he just from... like deny things alphabetically? Because you got acid rain, AIDS, 
<laughs> um, air traffic controllers. <laughs> air traffic Rights controllers. To, uh, right yeah. to strike. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you wonder. Yeah. Um, I think I think you can just organize everything alphabetically because there was just so much stuff. So much. That he, <laughs> True. Like, you know, yeah. Uh, we search. You know, pattern recognition is something we do reflexively, whether there's a pattern there or not. Right. Right. Our monkey brains, like it's what we do. No, um, he. It, it wasn't until he made a made a visit to Canada, and was directly confronted with, "Oh, hey, look at the damage that's being caused to the trees and the buildings and all of this stuff here." Um, and at which point, when he actually, you know, was confronted with, "Oh no, this actually is a real thing," and by the way, this is caused by the smoke coming out of the smokestacks of uh, power plants on the American side of the border. At that point, he went, "Oh, okay, so right. maybe I should have some people look into this." And you know, but it took, but it took literally being, you know, having it held in front of his face for this, him to acknowledge it. This leads to my favorite quote by Lee Iacocca, because at this point, they were not putting screens over the uh, the the smokestacks, as I recall, and and they're like, "This will never work," and blah blah blah. And then they did, and they're like, "Oh shit, we have a whole new fuel source that's even better because the coke would gather up." It's called yeah. coke. Um, and but Lee Iacocca said very shortly after this, uh, "We have to ask ourselves just how much fresh air do we need." just all of it please. right yeah like why are why fucking I... all of it like <laughs> what yeah yeah lee lee iacocca is a real life general ripper like yeah. he's the industrialist version of general ripper yeah like it... like what <laughs> you're a parody right we've been doing this for a long time <laughs> Like you're not a dummy, right? You're not a dummy, but like you have no capacity for self-reflection because if you did shit like that would not come out of your mouth. Well, I think what's really happening there though is, um, th this is, I spoke of the overturn window uh, yeah. just yeah. a bit ago, but this is what you do to yank the overton window. You don't push it from within. You yank it from without mm. so that the next thing you say seems reasonable by comparison and then people will head toward that so how much fresh air do we really need oh my god are you fucking kidding me oh my god okay yeah. but do we really need all these regulations for moose well you know yeah, fuck okay. okay yeah you know I mean, and, I see, and you yeah get, i see what you're saying and yeah. and that's i mean that's how you know it's you you don't you don't actually expect and, and then you just keep ramping up the crazy like you don't actually expect people to get on board with like genocide you know um yeah but ethnic cleansing uh, we need a new sports stadium yeah you know so right. sure yeah. you know it's, it's that kind of thing um and and you just kind of keep that pressure on and i think in many ways i think that's what he was doing he was anchoring um in the back okay. shit area but at the same that. time that quote on its own is it, it, it's one of my like four favorite quotes in American history. The number one being uh, General John Sedgwick of the Union Army saying they couldn't head an elephant at this dist. Yeah. Right before yes. a sharpshooter. Right before a Confederate Shot. sharpshooter took him out. Yeah. It's yeah. I had that in my wallet for at <laughs> least a decade. <laughs> they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. Yeah. 
Well, <laughs> everybody backs up five that's, more feet. That's Boaz. <laughs> so isn't it ironic? Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So so Reagan is faced with acid rain. He actually yeah, conf- he actually says it and, all right, okay. fine. Um. But in don't, the popular, don't you wish? Don't you wish? we didn't have to wish for the days where Ronald Reagan was the reasonable one. Like, like Ugh. all of that feels like, yeah. Quaintly reasonable. Doesn't it though? It really doesn't it though. Yeah. There's, there is so much ugly shit mm-hmm. that I can talk about, about like what the, what the state of the world was in 1980, 1981 and mm-hmm. how bad the Reagan administration was. Mm-hmm. And you and I are going to sit here the whole time going, Oh yeah, that sucked. Yeah. Uh, yeah Man, can um, we get back to that yeah can we can we can, <laughs> that's can we, can, that's, we, can we climb in the wayback machine right like you know yeah can we yeah. at least can yeah. we at least go there yeah like, <laughs> like uh, God damn it yeah, yeah. Okay. um so but in the popular imagination mm-hmm. environmental issues had become a theme of concern and subject of debate sure um, the Clean Air Act had been passed in 1970. Clean mm-hmm. Water Act in 1972. Yep. The 19- EPA had been created under Nixon. Yep. The first yep. Earth Day was in 1970. Um, and now the history of scientific consensus on climate change is complicated. But by the 1970s, there was consensus. Like scientists, the majority of scientists all agreed human-influenced climate change was a thing. There was some disagreement up until the 80s about whether carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was going to lead to warming long term or if other stuff that we were like smog and and other pollution was going to lead to an increased albedo effect and, and reduce the amount of light coming from the sun and lead to a cooling phase. And there was a very brief cooling mm-hmm. phase for several years, I want to say, into the 70s. Mm-hmm. And That's then that... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. And, well, and then that reversed. And right. by the 80s, the scientific community had determined the trend overall was one of greatly concerning planetary warming. Yeah. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, scientists funded by... Um, by the government that were doing yeah. this, like uh, as early as the 1950s, mm-hmm. a lot of the major oil companies were like, you know, we could run out of this stuff. Why don't we take yeah. a look at the effects that it's having? And then they like they did studies and they knew as again, as early as the 19 late 60s, early 70s, I think. Yep. Um, And they just mm-hmm. buried it because they're like, OK, let's not tell anybody about this and squeeze as much out of this turn up as we can. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and deforestation, especially mm-hmm. in the Amazon was a growing issue, started receiving media attention in the 1980s. That's right. Um, acid rain. I remember reading about acid rain as a kid in, right. you know, 82, 83, um, all of, all of this environmental, like we, we became aware, like the zitgeist became aware of. Mm-hmm. the parlous state of the environment and the fact that things were getting worse. Well, I think you had Earth Day in, in the 70. 70s. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah it was in yeah. The, so it's it's in the 70s into the 80s. Right. That that this is something that's that's becoming something people are aware of. Oh, I was thinking about this is kind um, of the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, cuz yeah. cuz as music festivals started lighting up to 
like be benefits. I remember there's farm aid mm-hmm. and live aid and mm-hmm. and I forget exactly what either of those was for. Um, well, presumably farm aid, farm was, aid for, was... was for farmers, right? In the Midwest, live aid <laughs> was a uh, was for famine relief. That okay, Africa. so it was, yeah, because yeah. I remember Ethiopia was a big deal, right? The the, yes. the blight and the ongoing famine, famine and civil war, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like part of it was man made, like there was most of it. There like, was, yeah, we the, could we yeah. could always feed people. Yeah, that's always a thing we've we've been able to do uh, since modern transportation. Yeah, but human human intervention gets in the way of yeah. doing exactly that. Like, yeah, yeah, and um, so all of this stuff is in is in the the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to restate kind of what we've already gone over in a bit mm-hmm. more detail, the Reagan Thatcher combined economic policy uh was intensely pro-corporate anti-labor and anti-regulation yeah like across the board yeah now in the uk these changes gave rise to dystopian work like ad 2000 and warhammer 40k which we talked about back at the very beginning of the podcast yep episode three for fans of the podcast yes. in the u.s we see an adaptation get made of do androids dream of electric sheep so in 1980, in, in, well, so people wanted to make a film about Android's Dream of Electric Sheep from like almost from the get go. Uh, in the very early 70s, Scorsese wanted to do something with it, but he never optioned it despite being really interested. Hmm. And uh, Robert Jaffe uh, wrote a screenplay in the early 70s, and uh, Philip K. Dick hated it so much. <laughs> That when Jaffe showed up in Santa Ana mm-hmm. to to talk to him about the project, Dick asked him, "Should I beat you up here at the airport or beat you up at my apartment?" Whoa! <laughs> like, okay, yeah, it was yeah. He, so that so that went nowhere. In 1977, Hampton Fancher uh, wrote a screenplay that got optioned. Okay, and it was gonna be it was produced by Michael Dealey. Uh, who then brought Ridley Scott on board to direct. Now, all of these decisions got made without anybody talking directly to Philip K. Dick. <laughs> uh, so, and and he had long-running suspicions of Hollywood. Like, even before this, he was really suspicious of of the studios and, and anybody who wanted to do anything with his, with his work. Uh, but... When when the movie got made, and this was the whole jumping off point for me doing this podcast, he was mm-hmm. effusive in his praise of what he was able to see of uh, the script and a uh, special effects sequence reel that he was able to view. Okay. Uh, he, he mentioned that uh, the visuals of the film uh, perfectly captured what he had envisioned in his head in uh electric sheep okay so i'm shortening shortening the title just because do androids dream of electric sheep is just it's too much to say so so he had a very strong visceral reaction to one person doing it is like no and then this he's saying this is good this is amazing so it's not him simply praising just for the sake of praising or yeah look i got a mortgage it's it's he took a stand against someone else doing it yeah having looked at it 
and now he's looking at this and he's going, this is it. This is perfect. Yeah. Okay. Well, that solves it for any of the fanboys who are like, you know, what would the artist say? Yeah. You literally have his words. Yeah. And he two different people. Yeah. He, he passed away. I want to say while the movie was, was in final, final editing and production. Oh, bummer. Uh, the movie was dedicated to him after his passing. Okay. There's a dedication dedicated to Philip K. Dick. Now, <laughs> the title of the movie um, mm-hmm. has has no relationship to the events of the film. Uh, Deckard in the movie is referred to as a Blade Runner, but there's no explanation of why they're called that. Uh, the title of the movie is actually taken from a completely unrelated science fiction novel written in 1974 by Alan E. Norse. Uh, now that novel is similarly dystopian, mm-hmm. but it has there's no androids in it at all. Um, it's about a smuggler who runs illegal medical supplies for black market medical treatment, uh, and he is a Blade Runner okay. because he smuggles scalpels. syringes and right. other yeah syringes, scalpels, and other other surgical equipment. Wait, That's... that that oh Jesus, clumsy hands. Um, sorry, listeners. Mm. Uh, but that that aspect that that right there gets folded into is it Minority Report, where uh Tom Cruise has to get mm-hmm. new eyeballs. Yeah, and you've got that whole mm-hmm. underground thing. Okay, so yeah. they they grab that and put that in there. Yeah, but they well, took the title they, and put it over yeah, there. Did, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And because um, like Minority Report, by the way, is based yeah. on another Dick novel. Really? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Similar similar issues of like where do we draw the line? Uh huh. You know. Like, well, yeah. What's, the, what's the gray area? Again, the epistemology too. Yeah. How do you mm-hmm. know, how did you know that that was going to fall? How do mm-hmm. you know that these people will actually commit these murders if you stop them before they do? Yep. Which is also David Hume level shit. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean the the billiard ball yeah. example is like almost you know verbatim. They use the wooden ball. Yeah, uh, but that's that's that is straight from David Hume. Oh yeah. So okay. So uh, now what's interesting because um, just uh, germane to our current political situation in Norse's novel, um, the reason there is an underground medical uh, uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Is because the government provides free medical care to the population, mm-hmm. but you have to meet eugenics standards for it. Oh, and in order to receive medical treatment, you have to agree to undergo sterilization for population control. Oh, so it's so it is so it is. Uh, government-funded healthcare being used as a tool by a right-wing government. Okay, just to bake the noodle of anybody involved in in you know current you know uh, uh, American society in yeah. discussion of healthcare. So, um, and so now that we've explained. Why, why the title is what it is? Um, mm-hmm. I think before I get into the intricacies of the actual plot of the movie, um, I, this is probably a good place to pause. Uh, okay. So, based on that, 
uh, right now at this point in the discussion, what do you take away? Um, it's, you know, here's, here's the thing. Uh, I, I'm now starting to wonder if we need to do a discussion on did sci what, what sci-fi of the eighties and seventies to some extent, but, uh, what, what sci-fi movies once movies were really, really a popular medium, okay. what those sci-fi movies did to influence present day sci-fi because all the people who are making movies now are the ones who grew up on those movies and so that's in their literacy so i i am fascinated to see um you know you remember what i've said about uh john williams and how he learned like he was he was an apprentice musician musical score maker mm -hmm. kind of guy he was at the elbow of all the guys that started doing the score when movies started. Yes. Right. So they'd been in it for 40, 45 years once he jumps in in the 1950s. Yeah. So he's literally just the second generation of score yeah. people. And so he grew up at their elbow as, you know, as they were tired, were retiring, he was gaining all their, their knowledge. Yeah. And now he is, you know, old. Yeah. And the, the uh, grandmaster of the medium. Yeah. And not only is the grandmaster of the medium, but he contains within him the sum total of musical score knowledge for all of cinema. Yeah, that's real. Right. You know, and and that's you know, to to keep my quota going, Ric Flair did the same thing by working with <laughs> Buddy Rogers. Uh <laughs> So, um, you know, there we go. We had to get it in there somewhere, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. But like, he just had his last match, uh, about a month or two ago. Like it, it was yeah. billed as Ric Flair's last match. And so the guy who worked with him, I forget his name. Um, but, uh, that guy will have worked with the guy who worked with. Yeah. I think the first or second WWF champion of all time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so on Holy and on. So, crap. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, and, and of course, Buddy Rogers absolutely influenced Ric Flair. Like he got the name Nature Boy from him. He took the figure four from him. He did the bleach blonde hair, that whole approach, and just d put the Ric Flair spin on it, you know, dialed it up to yeah. 11. And in as much as, uh, you know, John Williams worked with all the old masters, you know, he took all their knowledge and then he he took it in a new direction. So the people who are making sci-fi movies now, the people who are in charge of the studios now. Yes. Grew up watching this movie. And movies yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, you know, Kevin Feige. Yeah. You know, so it, it just I'm really curious as to how much this has shaped um all the things that we're seeing now yeah that's oh. i yeah i mean i can say right now at this point in the conversation i can mm -hmm. i can say that uh, blade runner has been a major influence on the genre mm -hmm. uh and and is a seminal part of the cyberpunk movement within science fiction mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean this is this is a foundational work right both the novel and the movie right so yeah so yeah I, i'm no it's a meaningful I, point 
intensely curious as to what threads we'll be able to pull all the way through in mm-hmm. what is likely to be the next or the following episode. Mm-hmm. So, all right, cool, cool. Yeah. So, what you? <laughs> I got one guess as to what you're going to recommend to people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I very highly recommend uh, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Okay. Um, it is. I am not having having said everything I've said about how important Dick is to the to the genre and and especially to the new wave and an understanding of all of that. Mm-hmm. I am not always a fan of his prose, which from my my rants about other authors, you, anybody who listens to the podcast knows that's that's a thing for me, right? Um, but his his ideas are amazing and he has an incredible ability to set a mood Mm -hmm. very very strongly and leave you carrying things with you for a long time after you finish reading okay so that's that is that is my recommendation uh what about you Well, I'm going to recommend something that's a little off the beaten path, but it actually it, it ties to this. So if you've got the Disney Plus app, uh, watch WandaVision, but also um, go check out the 12 issue limited series uh, called Vision and the Scarlet Witch. Um, and uh, that's it's it gets into a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Um, and it's kind of the source material, the reading source material. Or WandaVision. There, there are a number of differences, um, but uh, it this is where Wanda constructs a reality where she and Vision get to be together. They do it again. Uh, well, she doesn't. She does that mostly in House of M, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, but you do have their relationship in in Vision and the Scarlet Witch, and um, it's 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 fascinating. Like it really okay. is because you get into the psyche of vision. And at this point he actually is allowed emotions. Um, oh, wow. Okay. There, there are various iterations, you know, similar to data. Um, yeah. I think he cries in this one even. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, and, and I mean, he is literally an Android. So, yeah. um, but yeah, check that one out. It's a, it's a, it, it is its own mini, uh, mini series. Um, I want to say it was it ran from like October of '85 until the following October. That makes sense. That'd okay, be a yeah, it sounds about yeah. right. Yeah, twelve issue. Run. So yeah, and it's literally just one through twelve, I think. So okay, find that there's a lot of different apps you can find that on. So All I right. bet you could even find a trade paperback on it. So well, cool. But yeah, that's that's what I'm recommending. Those two things. So All right, cool. Where can folks find you on the socials? I can be found on the socials on TikTok at Mr. Underscore or Blaylock on TikTok. On uh, Twitter, I am E.H. Blaylock. We collectively can be found on the internet at www.geekhistorytime.com. And there you can go back and look at every episode uh, that we have recorded so far. Uh, going all the way back uh, to the beginning and uh, the the uh, Comics Code Authority. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are listening to us, since you are listening to us right now, 
uh, you have found us somewhere, probably either on uh, Stitcher or on the Apple podcast app. Wherever that was, please take a moment to subscribe and to give us the five-star review that we know that you know we deserve. Mm -hmm. And um, then, of course, uh, we can be found collectively on Twitter at Geek History Time. Where can you be found, sir? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Insta at the harmony. Um, and let's see at this point, uh, I'm going to say December 2nd, as well as January 6th, you can find me at Luna's with capital punishment, slinging puns, uh, with the capital punishment crew. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of really good people booked. I'm very excited about these two shows. Um, and then pretty soon I'll be able to announce a different, uh, another, another wrinkle to it. So, Looking forward to that. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Uh, 10 bucks plus a Vax card gets you in to see a really wonderful show. So December cool. 2nd and January 6th. So, well, for Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.